Welcome to May, or as we call it here on Royals, Rebels, and Romantics, Anne Boleyn Month. I'm thrilled to have so many of my favorite historians joining me to talk about Anne Boleyn. Love her or hate her, it seems like we can't stop talking about her. And that's certainly true this month. Welcome, everyone. I am absolutely over the moon to be here with a couple of my favorite historians whose work continues to inspire me and educate me, illuminate all of us in our understanding of one of our favorite figures, Anne Boleyn. So I'm here with Dr. Owen Emerson and with Kate McCaffrey, both of whom work in the magical, wonderful Hever Castle, the childhood home of Anne Boleyn, which I've been lucky enough to visit twice and I'm planning another visit. So welcome, Dr. Owen Emerson and Kate McCaffrey, and thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you so thank much. Thank you for it's having a, us. It's a pleasure to be back with you. It's a thrill. Owen and Kate have collaborated on a book that is a exhibition guide of sorts, or it's a companion piece to the exhibition Becoming Anne at Hever Castle right now. So I want to remind us all that it is the 500th anniversary of Anne Boleyn's appearance at the Royal Tudor Court. So I wanted to talk a little bit about where Anne Boleyn comes from. One of the things I love about this book and the exhibition is the idea that Anne does not sort of spring fully formed out of nowhere. I think often in some of the movies about her, we sort of see her as if she was just, I don't know, she came out of nowhere. And that's not the case. The Boleyn family has a rich history in different places. And then sort of with Thomas Boleyn moves into Hever Castle. So can you talk a little bit about the Boleyns and their progress in the years before 1522 when Anne enters the yes, royal court. Um, absolutely. So I, I think you're absolutely right in pointing out that in popular culture, Anne Boleyn just sort of arrives on the scene, doesn't she? She um, generally is just back from France. She's a fully sort of grown uh, young woman. And we don't really get to see how she became the woman she did. Um, and that's really sort of the, the backbone of our, our exhibition. We're asking, where did Anne come from? Who made her the woman she was? What influenced her? Um, and a big part of that uh, is her family background. So the Berlin family um, are a really, really important part of this story. Um, they aren't nobodies, far from it. They are a rising family. And actually, by the time that Anne is born, they are a really important family. And it's uh, quite a corrective that we're trying to put towards the narrative here at Hever, uh, that Anne isn't a nobody. She is actually the 1%. She's uh, somebody. Um, so her family does have quite an extraordinary rise. Um, Anne Boleyn's uh, great-grandfather is Geoffrey Boleyn, uh, who is almost certainly born in Saul in Norfolk. And he is the pivotal Boleyn. He is the one that gets away from um, his father's, shall we say, less than honest lifestyle, 
Um, he was uh, an owner of a small bit of land, Jeffrey's father, Jeffrey Senior. Um, but he was often practicing on the fringes of what was acceptable at the time, uh, often uh, flouting the law in fairly minor ways. Um, so Jeffrey Boleyn Jr. moves away from this sort of getting by lifestyle and really wants to, to make something of himself. And my goodness, does he? He moves to London. He becomes apprentice to a hatter. He moves through the guilds and... Um, eventually ends up as Lord Mayor of London. It's quite an extraordinary rise. Um, and he amasses enormous wealth and fortune and invests in properties and land, um, not least Blickling Hall, where all of the subsequent Berlins are likely born. And then latterly, uh, Hever Castle, um, which becomes a pivotal part, I would say, of the Berlin story. Um, he marries very well indeed. He marries a, a co-heiress, uh, Anne Hu, and um, this sets a pattern for the Boleyns. Uh, their son, William, marries incredibly well too, uh, exceptionally well, actually. He marries uh, Lady Margaret Butler, who is the co-heiress again of the Earldom of Ormond, which is one of the premier titles in the land, uh, and it comes with enormous wealth and status. And their son, Thomas Billin, makes yet another really advantageous marriage to Lady Elizabeth Howard. Um, so this is a family, yes, on the rise, but they really have got extraordinary far before Anne has uh, even been thought of. Um, so... That's, that's an integral part of this exhibition and, and one which I think we chart in our book, this exceptional rise of the Berlins before Henry VIII turns his attentions to Anne. So now we, we have Anne as a young woman really benefiting from her father's success as a diplomat. And in particular, he is able to secure for Anne and also Mary has some good positions, but Anne in particular has a couple of really great international opportunities. So you can, can you tell us a little bit about her upbringing, which after all is very sophisticated and international and seems surprising for a young English woman. Is it surprising? And can you tell us a little bit about that? I think, yeah, absolutely. Her, her educational opportunities are surprising. Uh, and like Owen said, um, you know, she's in the 1% at this point in terms of what kind of opportunities she's getting to to flourish into the woman that we know that she was when she returned to England 500 years ago. And you're absolutely right in saying that a large part of that was due to her father, Thomas Boleyn, and his diplomatic efforts, particularly um, in 1513, we have... Anne Boleyn uh, going to the court of Margaret of Austria, uh, who was the regent of the Low Countries, and she was the daughter of the Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian I. And Thomas Boleyn had struck up a diplomatic relationship with Margaret prior to this point, and that's absolutely the reason for Anne's uh, position at Margaret's court. It was an extremely prestigious position uh, for her to be in. Um, you know, she was going to be educated here alongside the greats um, of Europe, you know, the nieces and nephews of kings and queens of Europe. So 
this really is a huge, huge opportunity for Anne um, to start a highly international education. Um, and I think it really sets her apart ultimately as a, a woman of this kind of European elegance uh, and intellect and culture. Um, and obviously then after Margaret of Austria's court, she only spends around a year there. It's hard for us to date exactly when she leaves, but she at some point then the next year goes to to France um, and initially in the, the train of uh, Mary, the sister of Henry VIII, who's getting uh, married to the French king. And then later she stays on when uh, others return. She stays on in France for a further seven years uh, in the train of Queen Claude of France. And I think that's particularly what I loved about this exhibition and about our book um, is looking at these these women who have inspired and influenced Anne. Because again, as we said at the beginning, she she comes back to, to England 500 years ago as this hugely sophisticated and intellectual um, woman who's like, wows everyone. And, and that absolutely comes from somewhere that comes from both experiences with people at her childhood in England, but but also hugely her experiences with women, powerful women who she meets um, in Europe. So obviously Margaret of Austria being the first of those. And then later in France, she is obviously in the train of Queen Claude, who spent much of her, her time uh, pregnant um, and so wasn't necessarily the huge uh, role model for Anne in terms of leadership and, and power, but she was a huge patroness of the arts, for example. And so we know that Anne uh, was exposed to a lot of uh, beautiful literature and religious literature uh, in France under Claude. And, and we can see direct influences actually between uh, books that we know that Anne would have looked at uh, in Queen Claude's household and books that Anne then later owned in her later life. And that's um, some some insights that have come from my research into one of our books of ours that we have here in the castle. Um, and then you have Louise of Savoy in, in France as well, who, who was the regent um, for Francis I uh, every now and then when he went off to war and she was uh, Francis's mother. She's very much, I think, seen as the power behind the throne uh, she's this formidable a presence, and I think Anne would have certainly learned a lot about a female wielding authority and wielding agency uh, in the early modern world by by watching Louise. And then, lastly, we have Marguerite d'Angoulême, who obviously is this huge religious uh, patron, patroness of religious reform that we know becomes a very important part of Anne's life and that she takes forward with her. We know when she returns to England and continues to treasure France in every way. She reads the French Bible, she reads texts in, in, in French, um, and she certainly remains close to the kind of religious reform that we see Marguerite um, yeah, patronising. And, and I think these are all huge influences on Anne in sort of every aspect of her character, so that when she returns back to England, she's this incredibly well-rounded, well-travelled um, individual who really does does take the court by storm. Thank you. I love that so much. And I really love thinking about Anne being influenced by these women. You know, we often think of this as such a bastion of male power, but we have someone like Margaret of Austria who was wielding the power and was making such a difference in the whole community, the whole environment of the Low Countries and that leadership that she was 
exerting. We see Queen Claude, as you mentioned, maybe not the leader as, as much, but her support of the arts and the literature. And I loved your research on the way that Claude incorporated art into her religious books and how we do see that in Anne's Book of Hours. I, I love that connection of Anne with France and also specifically with this queen that she served there. And then, uh, you know, just imagine being in a court with Louise, Louise of Savoy. I mean, she was so amazing and, and, you know, someone who really was comfortable with power as was Marguerite in her own way and the religious reform. And one of the stories I love that happens way down the road is when Princess Elizabeth translates one of Marguerite's works for Catherine Parr, who was her stepmother at the time. So I just love that thread of Marguerite sort of through Anne's life and into Elizabeth. So it's it's wonderful to think about how these women, you know, helped her become Anne. So now let's bring her into the court in 1522. I know we don't know exactly when she was born, but she was probably about 21. Um, She sort of arrives in court and she's very quickly um, well, made a big splash or well-known, or she really has quite a strong presence right away and is in the Chateau Vert pageant. So I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about that pageant and why you think Anne Boleyn, who hadn't been in the country for a while, was able or was chosen to be in such an important pageant in terms, not of the story or whatever, but it was important in terms of entertainment for royalty. And she was um, participating alongside the king and Mary, the recent queen of France. And so she was really in suddenly with the main players in the English court. So how did all that come to be? That's that's a really, really good question. And um, firstly, we know that Anne is returning to England, um, really to marry um, uh, her cousin, uh, James Butler. Um, that's why she has been recalled. Although there is the question also of the breakdown of the alliance between England and France and a new uh, alliance with uh, the emperor. Uh, and uh, Francis actually notices Anne's uh, departure and begins to suspect, I think, that uh, the entente between England and France is breaking down. Um, so her, her departure does cause something of constitutional crisis between England and France. Um, uh, but of course, she, she's going to be uh, in a position at court. Her father is a, a courtier um, and a very well-established one at this point. So is her mother. She has been in the train of uh, Queen Catherine uh, since her coronation. In fact, she had quite a prestigious place in the coronation ceremony. So the Berlins are becoming an established staple at court. Uh, and uh, we know that Mary is already established at court and later George will be too. Um, but you're right, she does uh, get propelled right into the centre of um, action, shall we say. Her first appearance is at the, the Chateau Vert pageant, which takes place on the 4th of March, uh, 1522. 
And this is a pageant that's being put on for some ambassadors of the emperor. Uh, so this is uh, Henry ingratiating these ambassadors. Catherine is undoubtedly playing uh, a role as host. And this is the culmination of the Tide festivities. It's a pageant that's taking place at the Cardinal Wolsey's residence of York Place. And it is a pageant set up in the Great Chamber there. And um, the, the theme of the whole Shrovetide celebrations had been unrequited love. And um, yes, there is this glittering uh, culmination which takes place in the Great Chamber. There is a, a, a fake green castle which has been constructed in which uh, the virtues are being kept prisoner. There are vices beneath the castle which are keeping them inside and Henry is going to be uh, the white knight, shall we say, that's going to liberate uh, the virtues from the Chateau Vert. Um, and there has been something of a uh, nuance, shall we say, uh, in the past uh, couple of months, uh, all thanks to a wonderful scholar by the name of uh, Dr. James Taff, um, who asked a very, very important question on the actual anniversary date. How do we know that Anne Boleyn played the role that we think she did in history? And it turns out that we aren't as certain as we were before. Um, uh, George Cavendish kept a really good account of this brilliant event and detailed all of the roles um, and there was a separate list of the ladies who took part, which Eric Ives presumed were in the order of seniority uh, that Cavendish presented his in, um, and therefore merged the two lists, um, which gave the result of Anne Boleyn playing Perseverance in this um, pageant, which, if true, would be uh, very apt indeed, considering how... Uh, much perseverance Anne uh, was required of Anne during the, the, the great matter. But we must be clear, and I wish I'd known this before, that we cannot be 100% sure that that is accurate. We don't actually know that those two lists um, can be merged as seamlessly as we previously thought they were. Um, but we do know that Anne is playing a key role here. She's in a room full of all of the key players who really will change the course of history. You know, she's performing alongside, as you as you mentioned quite rightly, um, the Dowager Queen Mary, Henry VIII's sister, um, who will firmly oppose uh, the scandalous relationship that she will go on to have with Henry VIII. We've got Jane Parker in the room uh, who will go on to marry... Uh, Anne's brother. Of course, we've got Mary Boleyn, uh, but we've also got Cardinal Wolsey. Anne is performing here in Wolsey's household. And uh, of course, she will oversee the downfall of Wolsey some years later and will return to York Place rather triumphantly walking on his grave. And of course, that room will become the great palace of Whitehall that um, Henry and Anne will establish together when eventually she does become queen. So there's something really electric and exciting, actually, about this event, because we know what happens next. 
Well, I was just going to emphasize that by saying I think that's what really drew us to this anniversary, obviously, aside from the fact that it is the 500 years, but it really, once you start looking into it, this is such a pivotal point in all of these key players' lives, and they don't know it yet. I think there's something so compelling about this image of, as Owen said, all these these really important figures for the next 10 years in this same room, and they're all sort of unaware about how things are going to unfold. And there's a great sort of dramatic irony in that, I think. If you were going to write write Anne's story as a play, you, could, you couldn't do better than to start it at the Chateau Vert pageant where all the key players are there and they're all rubbing along and no one knows it yet, but they're all going to fall out dramatically. Right, and that, that physical space will also undergo from Woolsey to Henry, it, you know, it all changes. And it, I couldn't help but think of sort of a play on the room where it happened in Hamilton, that it's the room where it's going to happen, even if it hadn't quite, you know, this is the first maybe seen in that lengthy um, production. So thank you. This is this is really great to think about that pageant. And I also appreciate, because I had been following the question about Perseverance, because I had just always thought we knew she played Perseverance. And that idea, that re-examination is one of the things that's so exciting about the history um, just continuing to evolve and teach us things. We may not have been quite as right about or as certain about some things as we may have thought. And there is always more to learn. And Kate, of course, is a great example of that in the last little bit. So, and Owen as well. So I love that. I love even when we end up questioning something we thought we knew, it's just all about the learning process. So I was just going to say, I think I remember Owen and I, um, when we saw this debate happening sort of on Twitter with James kind of kicking it off, it was so we sort of looked at each other and we're like, oh my goodness, how have we just written our book and just sent it to the publisher while sort of stating this is as sort of what we thought was fact. And then suddenly it's being called into question. But but there's always a new perspective to be found uh, in history and everything is worth a second look whoever's written about something in the past um it's it's always just worth just double checking because there's there's always more to find and and this is a great current example of that i think some of the most most important interventions actually start with really really simple questions you know going back to the how do we know that why do we know that where do we know it from and you know as historians we we are evaluating evidence all the time. And we're also trying to thread that into a understandable narrative for people. And, you know, decisions are made and they may be problematic. And it is really important to go back to those assertions and start to unpick them and just verify that it's, it is as simple as it's being presented as, um, and, uh, Actually, um, the amazing historian Natalie Gruniger played an important part here um, because we, we both got in contact with each other and said, OK, let's try and crack this. Let's let's try and see what the earliest reference to it was. Natalie sort of walked, uh, worked backwards through the historiography and I went uh, uh, sort of forwards a bit and we sort of merged at the same point and realised it was Ives' intervention. There was nothing before Ives that stated that that Anne had played the role of perseverance. So it is really important to to spend some time just ticking those boxes, because if you don't, you might 
not be able to nuance what we already know. And, and it is really important to, to do that. Um, and her forthcoming work, act, actually, about the last year of Anne Boleyn is fundamentally underpinned by that level of scrutiny. And it is astonishing what she has been able to challenge in terms of why Anne fell, what her fall looked like, um, and the amount of myths that she's been able to jettison. Um, things that we, you know, would have sworn blind that were correct and established. Uh, it, it's uh, absolutely amazing, really is. Again, such an important current example of, of this kind of reevaluation happening. And it's what makes it so exciting. It makes it so exciting to be a part of this discipline. And at this time as well, I think, because there's so much incredible research coming out. Natalie's book that's coming, like Owen said, is absolutely fascinating. And it, it's a very, very exciting time to be a part of this field. Right. And Natalie is wonderful. And I know from speaking with her, she is so dedicated to the research, as are both of you. And I I think, you know, one of the questions that I loved watching really open up with your research, Kate, was the notion that Amberlynn and Catherine of Aragon are so often pitted against each other. And yet that they owned this same edition of this book of ours and may have read it in the same room is so powerful in thinking of them as sharing something. Yeah, I just think that is so powerful. And so all of this sort of unpicking is so exciting and how we, you know, discover new things and, and gain more understanding. Um, and I'm fascinated that it all goes back um, with a perseverance question to um, Ives lining those lists up. I mean, you know, what an interesting and simple thing that then took on such a life of its own. <laughs> you know? And I, I certainly was, I was really quite shocked when I saw that um, you know, sort of growing on Twitter, I thought, wait a minute, don't we know this? I thought we knew this. So it's it's really wonderful, I think, and very exciting. Isn't that great that we have these current hot topic historical discussions happening on Twitter? Isn't that amazing that we can have these kind of huge breakthroughs in academic discussion by historians and fans and, and interested mm -hmm. people coming together on Twitter? It's just great. Or on social media. It, it is. It is. And, and it's really fun to sort of watch. So yes, thank you. Now, something that I also have thought, hmm, maybe there's more to this than I've thought, or maybe I don't know. You mentioned the marriage to James Butler, which is um, why Anne was recalled. And yet it quite quickly just sort of peters out to nothing. You know, it was worth bringing her back and sort of raising an issue of Francis the first, but it doesn't really go anywhere. And then there's also a potential marriage for Anne with Henry Percy. So why were those two possible? And you can tell us how possible were those marriages and why do you think they didn't happen? Because again, pop culture said, well, Henry saw Anne at the Chateau Vercagent and he was, but he wasn't in the game for Anne at that point at all. So what was happening with her marriage prospects in those early years after she returned? That's a, that's a really, really good question. And um, I think the answer for the first one is to do with um, sort of familial disputes. And the second one, a lack of familial um, in, involvement, really. So um, Anne is recalled um, to... England on the basis that she is going to marry uh, James Butler, her, her cousin. 
And but this isn't something that has been set up by her father. This is something that has been set up by her maternal uncle, uh, the Duke of Norfolk. And um, he has recently become um, uh, involved in Ireland. Um, and he is keen to settle the dispute between Thomas Boleyn as uh, uh, the presumptive heir to the earldom of Ormond and another claimant, Piers Butler. Now, the, the Duke of Norfolk's um, sort of quick solve, shall we say, is that Anne will marry uh, James Butler, Piers' son, and um, therefore the, the claimant's sort of dispute will be wheeled. Um, sorry, let me say that again. The claimant's dispute will be settled by this marriage. Um, but I don't think he consults Margaret Butler or Thomas Boleyn in this. That's totally um, in character, shall we say, for the Duke of Norfolk. And uh, it is not a desirable marriage for Thomas because uh, it sidesteps him and his male heirs. Um, so um, I, I think that's the overriding reason that Anne doesn't actually end up marrying um, him um, because it, it isn't the solution that Thomas is looking for. He and his mother are very keen for him to uh, take the title, um, which he eventually does. So, yes, I think there's uh, uh, the question of sort of unhappy families at play here um, with the, the, the proposed first match. Um, the, the second one, we think it's really a love match between Henry Percy, who will later become the Duke of Northumberland, and Anne. And this isn't something that I think the families are arranging. I think this is a natural uh, attraction. There is talk of a betrothal between them. Um, not a marriage, as you often see in popular culture. Um, but this is very much something that Wolsey is against, perhaps even the king. Um, and Wolsey breaks off this proposed union. Um, marriage, yes, love was expected or desired, shall we say, in marriage in the early modern period. But for someone of Anne's status, it was never, rarely, rarely the foundation for marriage. Um, it was a desired outcome, but not the foundation. So, um, and marriages were about political alliances um, between families that were advantageous to the monarch. And this was not something that he had planned. It was something that they were planning. And um, Cavendish really suggests quite heavily in his work about Wolsey that it made a lifelong enemy of um, Wolsey on, uh, on Anne's part. Um, uh, and retreats to Hever or is sent there in disgrace following this break, uh, break up and Cavendish sp uh, speaks of her uh, smoking, um, uh, in other words, fuming um, at Hever, um, uh, or, you know, because of this, this breakdown uh, of, of her, her love match. Um, so, yes, when I talk uh, later on of Anne returning to Wolsey's York Place, and walking on his grave, uh, I definitely, uh, I definitely mean that. I, I think she did resent him quite heavily, and this was her, her come up, you know, 
comeuppance and there's a bit of schadenfreude going on there as well. It's it's interesting that it was all part of the politics. Marriage was always part of the politics. And so that was always really part of Anne's life, the politics of marriage. Um, and I just wondered, by the time that she does become involved with the king, she's not old by any means, but in that period of time, she is a little on the older side for someone who was not yet involved in a marriage. So why do you think, I mean, she had the Butler marriage didn't work. And then for a lot of reasons, the politics of the Northumberland marriage didn't work. So why is another match not sought for her right away? Or why does that, or was it happening and we just don't know about it? It sort of seems like that's something that would naturally have been in the works. I think that raises a really interesting point in itself about how how Anne really, you know, when she returned back to England after her time spent in Europe, she was a hugely attractive possibility for for any any man, and that, and that increased as um, the, as it went on, and as her father um, became Viscount Rochford um, in fifteen twenty five. And the family became more ennobled. That increased, but but Anne, by this point, she really is um, the epitome of kind of European elegance. And I think that that obviously comes from her time spent in in France and in, in the court of Margaret of Austria. But I think that she consciously took those elements that made her stand out from her peers, from her fellow English women who had who had only grown up in English in England. And I think she she consciously sort of created this image of herself um, to, to be almost a bit exotic. She really played on her kind of Frenchness and her exoticism. And so she really was a very attractive um, match for, for people uh, and certainly caught a lot of eyes. We know um, not just Henry Percy, but obviously uh, even uh, things in the, in the poetry of Thomas Wyatt, for example, Um so, so why she wasn't sort of snapped up, I suppose, is really interesting. And I think it, it gets very muddled timeline-wise because we we don't know, obviously, exactly when her, uh, Henry was having his affair with Anne's sister, Mary. We don't exactly know when Henry first looked at Anne and and uh, thought of her in, in a different way. Um, and obviously, Henry Percy kind of comes in between that as well. So it's all slightly muddled. Um, but... But yes, and, and really, I think to an extent was holding herself out for a match that she knew she could make. Um, I think she did have ambition at this point. And I think she had seen the advantages, the political advantages of making an advantageous marriage. And I think she was aware of that. She wasn't going to sort of sell herself short. She wasn't going to settle for um, Butler necessarily. She was she was going to hold on for something. I don't think she would have initially any clue quite how high she would marry um but but i do think she was conscious of that and that her family were conscious of that i think you're i think you're really right there actually and i think um you know with the particularly with the northumberland match this is Anne really carving out a space for herself she's you know using her charm her acumen um and is i think we can get an indication here of her understanding of her self-worth and and her aspirations as well that she is prepared to start negotiating these um sort of areas for herself and i think that tells us a lot about her character actually 
I really love how all of this gives us a picture of the woman who we don't know. And Kate is exactly right. Of course, we don't know exactly when the king looked at her. But by the time he did, she had not sprung out of nowhere. She had, and I love the idea of her cultivating all of those um, influences of that sophisticated, elegant European courts and that upbringing, which did make her stand out. And, you know, if you think about Henry VIII and his upbringing, he was certainly well-educated, but he was not exposed to the level of sophistication or the level of European elegance that Anne had grown up in. So she must have been just such a point of fascination for him right off the bat when he begins to pay attention to her because she incorporates that level of elegance, the Burgundian, the French, things that he was very drawn to, but had not experienced himself. So I love thinking about how she sort of creates that of herself as she is becoming Anne. I love that. I think actually Anne embodies the the kind of sort of spirit that Henry is trying to engender his at his own court. Um, she is the sort of an embodiment of the the Renaissance, and um, you know she's she has the sort of spirit of it as well. And so I, th- I think he does find that enormously attractive. Let's talk now as we've understood Anne's, you know, what happens with her and how she comes to the moment in 1522 and how important that is. Let's talk about the exhibition. And I've not seen it yet, but tell us when we visit, what will we experience as we sort of return to 1522 and Anne's early um, growing years at Hever, and how can we sort of plan for and experience the exhibition? I think that, um, well, we're very excited to hopefully have you to come and see the exhibition <laughs> later this year. Um, but yes, I think the exhibition, you know, at the heart of it is this narrative that we've been talking about um, for the last half hour or so. It, it really is about understanding Anne's origins um, and where she came from and hopefully challenging expectations of where she came from and illuminating aspects of her life that just do not receive the attention. You know, we all know Anne's tragic end, but but very few know the extent of her upbringing and how important that was in in, in becoming Anne. Um, and so, we, so we've got some really exciting items on display uh, for example, we have a beautiful um, dress reconstruction um, of a after Hans Holbein portrait that we have that used to be kept in in our inner hall, um, and it's now uh, upstairs in our exhibition uh, next to this full dress recreation, which uh, was made by the wonderful Samantha Rees and is on loan to us by Karen Davies, and and it's beautiful to see this dress, um, which is interesting because it's in the English style, so we see the gablehood, we see um, the kind of English style of fashion, which we don't necessarily always associate with Anne. We obviously sort of see her more connected to things like the French hood, um, which obviously relates to her time in France. And she certainly wore those, but but she also would have worn the English fashion. She didn't just come back to England and only wear European fashions. She, she would have also uh, been seen in the gablehood, which um, this is a great kind of uh, illustration of. 
And then as we go through, we have, well, we've got a wonderful collection of miniatures on display, which um, I'll let Owen talk about. But but we also have renamed a portrait, which I'm particularly excited about, um, which is on display in our last room. And it, it was bought by Heva. So it's been in our collection. We, we bought it back in 2002, I believe, um, when it was identified in good faith as Catherine Parr. But we have, uh, just for this exhibition, re-unveiled uh, the portrait to actually be Catherine of Aragon, um, which is down to a lot of research um, that has been done uh, on the Lambeth Palace portrait, which is a copy of this same portrait um, by the, the British, uh, by the National Portrait Gallery. Um, and we're able to sort of date this portrait or the face of this portrait, um, the image of it, to 1520. So really, it's a perfect match for this 500-year anniversary. Uh, this is the face of Catherine of Aragon that Anne Boleyn would have looked at when she returned to the English court uh, 500 years ago. So it, it's it's a really special piece to kind of have at the end uh, of our exhibition. Wow, that is that is exciting and wonderful to think about. This is the face of her queen, you know, when she returned. Wow, that Absolutely. is exciting. And it's a really youthful image as well. It's a really kind of romantic um, portrait. You know, Catherine looks very, um, yes, just sort of young and full of life. And, and this is a point in mm-hmm. Catherine's life where, you know, she's probably had her last pregnancy, but she's not aware of that yet. There's, there's still hope that she'll provide mm-hmm. a male heir. Mm-hmm. So she is sort of at a, a pivotal point herself and, and again, doesn't know it. Um, and this is this is the the face that, yeah, that, that would have been seen uh, at the Chateau Ver pageant. And that was, again, about to, so much was about to change for her uh, the following decade. Wow. Yes, because she was also at Chateau Ver. And we need to remember that, too. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I think uh, Kate's absolutely right. That's one of my favourite uh, items in the exhibition, the, the newly relaunched portrait of Catherine. It's, it's lovely to finally have it um, labelled correctly. Um, but we do, as Kate said, have um, other portraits to explore. Um, we've got a collection of portrait miniatures which um, depict the, the French court. So we've got a little one of Anne, uh, one of Francis, one of Marguerite d'Angoulême, one of Queen Claude and also one of Louise of Savoy. Um, so really lovely uh, sort of intimate little collection. Um, they, um, re- they're really lovely because we know that um, Queen Claude uh, was especially fond of portrait miniatures and uh, of art. So it's really lovely to have that, that little collection there. Um, and we've also got room reconstructions of Heaver as they probably would have looked um, during the um, Berlin's tenure, how Anne would have seen it. Um, and I, what I really enjoyed about those were um, really understanding how little about Hever has changed. I mean, you really are walking in the same rooms uh, that the Berlin's occupied. And it it's really uh, astonishing, actually, that, you know, so much of this really integral history happened in those spaces and to be able to exhibit these items in those rooms that the Berlins would have known and loved is is really an honour actually. Before Owen gets too humble there those reconstructions which are absolutely phenomenal uh, were made by Owen so he has designed what the rooms used to look like and the artwork is incredible and the visitors remark on it all the time as they're walking around so it's definitely a highlight of the exhibition as well to come and have a look. 
Well, thank you, Kate, for pointing that out. Because <laughs> um, I don't know that Owen would have. So <laughs> thank yes. you. Yes. The work is amazing. And I absolutely cannot wait to visit myself. And I um, encourage everyone, if you haven't been there, it's open till November. Is that right? Yes. Yes. And I'm going in October. So if you want to travel with me, just give me a <laughs> ring. Um, all right. Now, I am going to ask each of you to just imagine that we could wave a magic wand and you could ask Anne Boleyn one question. Oh my gosh. I know. I know you want to ask more than one. I know. I know. But if you could ask her one question, what would that be? I would, I probably, I probably would ask her when she was born um, because I, oh God, I've had such a long history and a long sort of journey with Anne's birthday. I, when I first sort of um, came into the more academic side of Anne's life, I actually was firmly 1507. I then quickly changed my mind when I, when I first visited Cambridge and saw Anne's letter to Thomas uh, circa 1514 for the first time. That sort of really solidified my 1501 existence and I recently had a debate with the magnificent um, Claire Ridgway and Gareth Russell um, where Gareth has really problematized both of 1501 and 1507 quite convincingly um, so I'm up in the air I'm all over the place again I have no certainty whatsoever and I need I need Anne to, to put my, yeah, it's just, yeah. If I have to give a quick serious answer, I would, um, and it's probably not just one question, I would love to have a conversation with her about it, but I would be very interested in the timeline of Anne's religious development because that's something that I'm sort of looking into in my own research at the moment. And I suspect it's not as um as set in stone as, as we believe it to be. And I think the dates of her engagement with different types of traditional religion and religious reform are um, slightly different to what, to what we sort of traditionally accept. So I'd love to talk to her about that. That's wonderful. Both of those are fabulous. And I really do love that both are, you know, actively being researched because we don't know the answers. And so I think that's, that's really wonderful and how much we can continue to learn as we engage with each other and with the um, the manuscripts and the documents and, and thinkers of the, you know, the present, the current thinkers um, who look at things maybe a little differently than the way questions were asked even 20, 25 years ago. So that's wonderful. Now, I can't let you go without asking for both of you. What's ahead? And also for Heaver, what's ahead um, in the coming months or in the coming year? What are you working on and what do we have to look forward to as we start planning our trips to Heaver for next year as well? Oh, goodness. Okay, so we've got some really exciting things, really exciting things in the works. Um, honestly, the next few years at Heaver are going to be really exciting. There's a lot of change happening, which more information will uh, be released soon about but in terms of what we're working on at the moment I mean we're both uh, going to be co-curating obviously next year's exhibition with the wonderful Alison Palmer our head curator um, and next year's exhibition will 
be based on um, actually what you touched on earlier, Caroline, about Anne Boleyn and Catherine of Aragon and and not pitting them against one another and perhaps uniting them more than we've realised in the past. And again, reconsidering, reevaluating their relationship. So next year's exhibition will be will be centred around those two queens. And that's something that I am so excited to be working on right now. And I I know Owen is as well. Very. It's a really, really exciting time to be working at Heva. Um, There are lots of things we can't talk about yet, um, which I wish we could. Um, But there there are going to be a number of sort of really exciting announcements coming up, um, which I hope... It's definitely a stay tuned. It's a stay tuned. Yeah, stay tuned, isn't it? Um, and um, yeah, I'm also uh, working on another book about the Tower of London, which I'm absolutely loving doing. Um, I have no idea how long it's going to take me. Um, probably quite a long time. Um, but I'm really, really enjoying that. Um, and I'm also uh, starting to work on another book with Claire, um, which I'm really excited about. So we're keeping really busy, aren't we, Kate? We are keeping busy. We are. And yeah, Owen's books that are coming up are going to be absolutely spectacular. Yes. So definitely watch out for those. And maybe one day I will write I will write one on my own research, which continues yes. to be all-consuming and ongoing. And that's why I've not yet sort of sat down to, to write it, because every time I continue to research, I find something new. So <laughs> once I feel I have a, a comprehensive um, scope into the books and, and their relation to Anne and, and their afterlife, I will be putting pen to paper, certainly. Oh, excellent. All of that is so exciting to look forward to. So we'll all um, be waiting eagerly for all of this. And as you're so busy, I will let you both get back to work. Thank you so much for spending this time with me and sharing Um, these wonderful, exciting ideas on how Anne Boleyn became Anne Boleyn and how she didn't just sort of spring out of nowhere and um, how she was the product of a family that was very successful even before she came along. And the, the wonderful experiences she had with women um, in Austria, the Margaret of Austria, and of course, Louise of Savoy and Marguerite of Angoulême and uh, Claude of France, who were so influential. And uh, just the spectacular idea of that room in 1522 and all of the lives that were brought together there and were about to um, just combust in some really wonderful ways. So thank you both so much for all of your work for Heaver Castle and the wonderful place that it is and the stories it tells for this exhibition and this beautiful book that goes along with the exhibition and um, for welcoming me when I show up. Because <laughs> that will come soon. We'll be rolling out the red carpet. Yeah, don't thank you, you so much. Thank you. <laughs> you for joining me for this episode of May's Focus on Anne Boleyn. I'm so glad you were here. If you are enjoying the podcast, may I ask a favor? Would you mind please subscribing, sharing with a friend, leaving a rating, and even considering becoming a patron? I so appreciate your support. And let's keep shaking up history together. <laughs>